All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Mike Barsanti. I am the Edwin Wolf II Director of the Library Company. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you again tonight to the next in our series of Fireside Chats. Uh, these Fireside Chats have been uh, something we've been doing throughout the pandemic. Um, fortunately, the schedule uh, of readers is going to outlast the pandemic itself, which, uh, or at least I hope it will, but uh, we still have several more months uh, of Fireside Chats for you. And it's a program I'm, I'm hoping that we will continue um, as we begin to reshape our digital programming post-COVID. Um, tonight, I'm really glad to be able to present Professor Zachary Dorner. Uh, Zachary is a historian currently teaching as an assistant clinical professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. His first book, Merchants of Medicines, The Commerce and Coercion of Health in Britain's Long 18th Century, was published in 2020 by the University of Chicago Press and was a finalist for the Library Company's 2020 First Book Award. Uh, his work can also be found in the William & Mary Quarterly, the Journal of British Studies, Boston Review, Recipes Project, and Washington Post. Um, welcome, welcome back, I should say, and thank you for doing our fireside chat tonight, Professor Dorner. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me here. And as we talked about a little bit beforehand, right, it really is an impressive slate of virtual programming that the library company's been doing. So really happy to uh, be a part of it. All right. So yeah, so thanks again for having me here, right? I'm really glad to be remotely speaking at the library company. And as Mike alluded to, right, the library company is a place where I spent some important time during my early work on this project when I was still a dissertation, right? And now, as you can see from uh, the title slide, right, is now my first book. Uh, so my talk tonight offers an overview of some of the findings of the book, Merchants of Medicines, The Commerce and Coercion of Health in Britain's Long 18th Century and then goes on to consider what can happen when people are viewed as interchangeable patients. So I'm gonna focus on the 18th century, but I wanna start with a particular incident from the 1690s to introduce the central point of my talk, that during the early modern period and especially the 18th century, accelerating patterns of overseas commerce, warfare and labor, both supported and were supported by the British medicine trade. Increasingly, this was a trade in a particular kind of medicines that presupposed a more universal, interchangeable human body that would have profound implications for healthcare moving forward. So during the Nine Years' War, which stretched roughly from 1688 to 1697, uh, alternatively called King William's War, an abundance of sick men overwhelmed the English Army's medical service, while disease disrupted successful, uh, excuse me, successive naval expeditions to the Caribbean. The mortality and morbidity observed by military officials constituted a health crisis uh, that imperiled the war effort in their eyes and in the eyes of an emergent reading public. Naval forces and abandoned an attack on the French island of Martinique in 1693 after fever decimated sailors across the fleet, despite the medicines furnished by the London College of Physicians. So here, here's a view of, 18, of 18th century naval warfare. This is an engraving of a Royal, British Royal Navy uh, amphibious assault on the island of Martinique from the Seven Years' War. So not the Nine Years' War, but just to give you a sense of right, what this failed expedition may have looked like. Soon after, in 1695, several ships undermanned due to disease sank on the return voyages from the region. Based on these military failures, the Lords of the Admiralty began to reevaluate the Royal Navy's medical supply to avoid repeating the recent misfortunes. They sought more economical and reliable remedies that departed from the humoral or Galenic logics of the physician's medicines that had apparently failed them during the war. The Admiralty sought medicines that could be applied more broadly for curative instead of rebalancing purposes. So in other words, the physician's remedies, which followed individualized humoral and place-based logics to re-equilibrate one's constitution, did not fulfill the Admiralty's desire to simply, effectively, and in bulk, and that's key, and in bulk, treat the diseases sailors suffered in a range of locations. So manufacturers jumped at the opportunity to lobby the Admiralty for a contract to provide such medicines, recognizing that the Navy could invest substantial sums in efforts to keep its soldiers and sailors alive. 
the London Society of Apothecaries, alongside other druggists, chemists, and apothecaries, would find commercial success supplying medicines to the Navy and other institutions that oversaw large groups of people across the British Empire. So these examples might not seem theoretically robust or intellectually founded upon first glance, right? Maybe they're simply bureaucratic decisions made in haste in the fog of war, perhaps. But this moment illustrates a significant shift that was occurring in the thinking on medicine and disease in the early modern Atlantic world that soon found material support from large-scale inst imperial institutions, right, such as the Royal Navy in this case, but also the East India Company and the transatlantic slave trade. The confluence of these medical and commercial factors within an imperial context would reshape the scope and scale of the British medicine trade and hasten to turn toward viewing individuals as interchangeable patients who could be targets of similar remedies, right? So seeing people as interchangeable patients has gone on to alter healthcare practices and supported a globalizing pharmaceutical industry, while also providing evidence to those seeking justification for hierarchies based on skin color. So what do I mean by interchangeable then? I use the term to suggest the bulk therapeutics that followed an ontological view of disease. And ontological, by ontological, I mean an idea that ailments are things unto themselves, that assail the body from outside. And this ontological view began to find more consistent use in the 18th century, as opposed to the forms of individualized advice or consultation, uh, which represented a physiological view of disease. Um, that meant a view of disease, a view of disease that stemmed from one's unique body, that came from an internal to one's body that had predominated for centuries. And within such an ontological framework, a particular medicine, a quote specific is what they called them, could have the same effect on anybody in any location suffering the same affliction, regardless of age, sex, skin color, or rank, which offered the prospect of simple widespread treatment. Right, and you can already begin to suspect, and I'll explain it more, right, that this is a big idea, right, for, for a variety of reasons. Now I'll be explaining these terms and ideas in more detail later in the talk, right? So, so hold tight, don't, you know, if you didn't catch all that, all good. Uh, an ontological approach thus provided an intellectual foundation for the take this for that approach that enables us to walk into a CVS to purchase a particular medicine for a cold or an upset stomach, for example. And this has not always been a common way of understanding the body in disease though. Rather, a universal therapeutic body stands out within the grand arc of medical thought. The institutionalization of such an approach was both an embodied and an intellectual move. But as I hope you'll see from this talk, a deeply pragmatic material and commercial one too. Returning again to the previous example now, physicians along with many others at the turn of the 18th century could hardly comprehend treating alike the scores of military personnel, captives and slaves who populated the Atlantic world. As the Admiralty's decision to change medicine providers in the 1690s suggests, the requirements of managing groups of people motivated new demands of medicines and the infrastructures designed to produce and distribute them. The forced and voluntary migrations of the early modern world confronted multitudes with unfamiliar disease environments, brutal labor regimes and colonial warfare. As others have written about, these mass movements had profound social, political, ecological, cultural, and economic consequences. They also, I argue, had medicinal or health ones that reshaped how people received and paid for medicines, but also how, they, how those same medicines were produced, distributed, and consumed. These dislocations necessitated adjustments to pre-existing therapeutic frameworks and opened up new overseas markets for medicine exports predicated on the idea that European-made medicines would hold efficacy in far-flung locations. Of course, the task of identifying precise moments of transition from one idea to the next, or definitively elevating one possible cause over another can be difficult to do with certainty for historians, given the vagaries of the archive. And all this is to say that there are different ways of approaching the story I'm telling. The preference for medicines that could act similarly across distances and bodies reflected a number of pragmatic developments, particular to the British long 18th century. The influx of chemical remedies and new botanical drugs, 
the grouping of the sick into institutions, the rise to prominence of surgeons and apothecaries, the circulation of popular medical texts, and last but not least, the expansion of overseas empire, which is, again, the focus of this talk. Bringing together the histories of medicine and commerce in a long distance framework helps us see that during the long 18th century, imperial administrators, plantation owners, medical practitioners, merchants, and consumers yoked a population view of healthcare to the goals of empire, uniting them to turn people into patients on a broader scale than ever before. This shift involved epistemic changes in the ways people conceived of their health and very material changes in the production, delivery, and markets for European medicines. These changes stand at the heart of my book's central arguments. First, that the history of healthcare is a commercial and imperial story as much, if not more so, than it is a medical one. Second, that the codependence of large-scale forced labor in the medicine trade were shaped both parties in the long 18th century within a transoceanic frame. And third, that as, the, at, that as manufactured medicines became long-distance commodities, they provoked changes in the expectations people had for them, as well as the expectations they carried for their own bodies and those of others, especially when it came to labor potential and value. In other words, we cannot tell a story of a globalizing medicine trade or of quote, modern medicine itself without examining empire's role in incentivizing the transformation of people into recipients of mass produced medicines. And in many ways, we're still living with the consequences of that development today. To unpack the role of empire in the history of medicine, we have to start with the body and specifically the individualized view of it that had begun to change by the time the Admiralty sought new remedies in the 1690s. In Europe for millennia, staying healthy meant achieving one's optimal balance of the four humors, phlegm, collar, blood, and black bile, according to one's unique bodily composition, one's quote constitution, uh, in the face of environmental and bodily events that would disrupt it. And here on this slide, um, you can see right, a diagram laying out right, in each of the four cardinal directions, one of the four humors um, and your partic one's particular sort of combination of those humors would lead you to have a more, right, you can see hot, moist, cold or dry, right, um, constitution. And on the right, uh, you can see some of the sort of personality traits that are, were often associated with those kinds of temperaments. So health in this framework then, right, this humoral framework, was a matter of internal balance rather than one of cures. A night of carousing or a sexual encounter, even a foul mood could disrupt one's humors and thereby lead to sickness, right? An idea that perhaps does not seem so strange given current understandings of the mind-body connection. Within such a physiological view, health and illness were not strictly oppositional, nor were avoiding pain or curing an ailment necessarily the goals of healthy living. Rather, the aim was to keep or restore one's precise balance, which required a personalized interpretation of bodily signs, followed by diagnoses and prescriptions to re-equilibrate one's humors. All right, so I invite you to think for a moment with me about how laborious such an approach would be, especially when deployed at the scales demanded by early modern empires, right? Consider a surgeon, right, on a ship of the line or any other, right, sort of bulk population, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to more of those, but just, just think about the, the, how laborious such an approach would be. The humoral focus on individual health ran up against the labor demands of empire during the 17th and 18th centuries, when attempts to wrest control of territory and access the real and imagined natural bounty it offered provoked large-scale movements of people. More than 12 million African captives were forced onto ships across the Atlantic during the Mill Passage, between 1688 and 1815, the Royal Navy mobilized roughly 500,000 men, volunteer and impressed, in wars against France and Spain. Impressed sailors comprised anywhere from one to two thirds of this total, putting them a very distant second to enslaved Africans among forced labor groups in the 18th century British Empire. The army and trading companies sent scores more overseas to face new disease environments while European settlers traveled to new places where their bodies seemed in danger of transformation uh, in foreign landscapes and under unfamiliar stars. 
Under such conditions, death assumed new guises as a threat to mind, body, and soul. In the Caribbean, for example, decades of large-scale intensive agriculture in connection to the transatlantic slave trade created a disease environment on the sugar islands more conducive to pathogens that threatened the labor upon which the island's economies were built, even if they weren't understood as such at the time. Marshes that formed after the removal of forests for cane fields provided excellent habitat for mosquitoes, as did the standing water generated by plantation machinery. Monkeys brought to the Antilles from West Africa between 1640 and 1690 gave yellow fever another vector with no natural predators on the islands. From our vantage point, it is often difficult to separate the strands of plantation mortality and morbidity in the 18th century Caribbean. The physical degradations and deprivations of the plantation exacerbated endemic disease through injuries, malnutrition, and psychological trauma to become functionally indistinguishable from each other. Looking at the British Caribbean as a whole, life expectancy remained less than 40 years, especially for the enslaved in areas of sugar cultivation, though disease ultimately acknowledged neither rank nor skin. Male and female field workers, for example, were recorded as sick or disabled for much of their working lives. Across the Atlantic world, Endemic disease made healthcare a daily concern, as fevers, particularly malaria and yellow fever, already had a long history of inflicting severe losses on military expeditions and settlement schemes in the Americas. The political, economic, and mental components of health made it such a pressing issue, one that stretched, stretched across great distances and concerned scores of people, both free and unfree. It might seem strange to think of a universal therapeutic body given the ideas of inherent bodily difference that were being formulated at the time. But it's important to note that these ideas were not yet the hardened categories that comprised the scientific racism of the 19th century. These categories and their purported evidence were still very much in flux at this time, particularly when faced with the practical exigencies of empire. For example, surgeons in the South Sea Company turned to the same medicines for European sailors and African captives during long slave trading voyages uh, in the face of deadly disease outbreaks. Even in spaces of rigid, violent, racialized hierarchy, crews and captives received the same medicines for a quote, bloody flux that raged on board the ship St. Michael as it lay at anchor off Madagascar in 1726. For a time then, medicines were able to transcend nascent ideas of difference because of the convenience and utility they offered. Under these geopolitical circumstances then, the longstanding idea that ill health came from internal imbalance, right, the humoral or Galenic view, physiological view, began to see competition from another view, that diseases had essential qualities of their own and attacked the body from outside, right, the ontological view. And here it's a Thomas Rowlandson print from later in the 18th century, and I use this to teach a lot because it's just so evocatively illustrates the point I'm making here, right? That by the end of the 18th century, we see fever and ague, right? It's a term for sort of a malarial, malarial disease, right? Attacking this guy by the fire, sort of menacing him from outside his monsters, right? They have these sort of external uh, personifications. And right, such an idea, right? This ontological view carried many material advantages. It made it simpler and more cost-effective to manage the health of groups, especially those such as bound laborers or impressed seamen who had less of a choice about what went into their bodies. It contributed to the infrastructure of a commercializing medical marketplace for curative products across Europe and its colonies. Seeing illness as an ontological matter external to the body, no longer as an internal physiological one, popularized medicines that could be taken specifically for the treatment of particular diseases with the goal of curing them, hence the term specifics for such remedies. This way of thinking and new ways of making and marketing medicines enabled a much wider reach of such medicines. New printed texts by notable researchers, including Sindenham, Borjava, and Linnaeus, classified and characterized diseases and specifics were taught in Europe's most prominent medical schools. Large laboring populations, such as those on a sugar estate or a ship of the line, could be more conveniently treated with medicines designed materially and conceptually to be administered to groups of people. Faced with easily communicable and infectious diseases that could move quickly through a proximal population, medical practitioners found prepackaged medicines designed to treat a certain disease 
much simpler and cost-effective than the more time-consuming and patient-centered process of reading someone's humoral balance, especially in context of dehumanizing power imbalances that contributed to eroding distinctions between individuals. There's also an economic or commercial side to these intellectual developments, as I suggested earlier. Following the so-called financial revolution of the late 17th century, credit-based finance underwrote greater manufacturing and exportation capacity in Europe to service rising institutional demand for medicines. Partnerships of apothecaries, chemists, and druggists coalesced in mid 18th century London to produce in bulk medicines capable of being transported across oceans without spoiling and applied more or less uniformly to groups of people believed to be suffering from similar ailments. Medicine exports rose exponentially during the 18th century, achieving a scale and coherence not yet seen. And here we can see two views of the medicine trade. On the left, we see the view from letter books, right? The increasing scope, scale, connections, sort of volume of overseas correspondence for two merchants of medicines, one earlier in the 18th century and one later in the 18th century. You can see sort of the range of locations and the sort of volume of correspondence increasing over time. And on the right there, right, this is a graph charting, right? The y-axis is thousands of pounds weight um, and the x-axis is time. So you can see that over the course of the 18th century, really up until right, the disruption of transatlantic trade during the American Revolution, we see this really, if you, know, if you look at it mathematically, an exponential rise, you know, if you plot the curve, um, of medicine exports from London overseas. And by 1770, right, which we can see again reflected in this graph, uh, the medicine trade, distinct from the drug trade, right? So the dr drugs are classified in this period as the raw animal, vegetable, and mineral materials that are being imported into Britain. And the medicine trade, right, medicines are the manufactured remedies that are made from those drugs and then re-exported or sold domestically. Stretched across the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, it was one of the, and was the fastest growing of any of the trades in British manufacturers especially after the removal of export duties in 1720. The nearly 5% annual growth rate amounts to quite a large increase over the decades. You know, again, as you can see in this graph. And as you can see in this map here, um, which again comes from the book, are the bars representing, again, weight and pounds of medicine exports, right? You can see that locations dependent on forced labor constituted the major markets for British medicines in the 18th century. So envision here the connection between the promise of more profit, bigger production and wider distribution, right? Trends that both pushed and were pushed by the aforementioned ontological understanding of disease, as well as by contracts from institutions dependent on a version of bound labor and state policies to make the long distance medicine trade really stick within the period's healthcare infrastructures. So within this intellectual and political economic context, institutional contracts for medicines were important to the imperial state's aims and to businesses' bottom lines, as the competition for them shows. If one was fortunate enough to win one, a contract to supply an institution such as the Navy could guarantee regular income for an apothecary, chemist, or druggist at a time of increasing competition. For example, the Society of Apothecaries saw a substantial profit from its sales to the Royal Navy which had begun in the 1690s and continued well into the 19th century. Its Navy stock returned larger and larger dividends to shareholders as the century wore on. The desirability of this business spurred rivalries. In 1742, Sylvanus and Timothy Bevan of the Plowcourt Pharmacy proposed to supply the sick and hurt boards Caribbean hospitals with medicines at a 20% discount on the apothecary's prices. Their attempt to wrest some Navy supply from the apothecaries apparently proved unsuccessful, though not long afterwards in 1755, William Cookworthy, also a porcelain fame, if anyone's read uh, the fantastic book, The White Road, received a contract to serve the hospital ship Rupert docked at Plymouth, uh, Plymouth, England. The master and warden to the Royal of the Society of Apothecaries tried to block Cookworthy from doing so, but he supplied the Navy on small contracts throughout the Seven Years' War, 
not an uncommon occurrence in Britain and even more common in the North American colonies during the conflict. Wars and the ensuing exchange of colonial territory provided trading opportunities, right? Here uh, are two views, right, of places where uh, medicines were exported during this period, right? On the left, we have Fort St. George, right? An East India Company factory and fort on the Coromandel Coast in South Asia. And on the right, right, Quebec, right? The capital of right, French and then British Canada. And again, in this one map of Quebec, we see, right, circled here, the hospital sort of set aside uh, a little bit away from town um, because ideas about cont how contagious diseases were are still sort of being figured out at this time. But again, right, it's in places like this uh, where these medicines are being exported. Right, and medicine exports, you know, again, in the case of Quebec here, right, uh, usually followed once British forces captured a territory from a European rival, right, such as in the cases of Martinique and Guadeloupe. Right, after the invasion of Martinique in 1762, uh, during the Seven Years' War, 4,282 pounds weight of medicines reached the island before it was given back to France after treaty negotiations in 1763. Similarly, Guadeloupe received an average of almost 13,000 pounds of medicines yearly during the British occupation of the French Sugar Island from 1759 until 1763 uh, during the Seven Years' War. And as I write about in the book, and as a little um, local connection, right, medicines from Sylvanus and Tim Timothy Bevan, right, who I mentioned before is vying to supply the Navy, uh, also supplied medicines to the Pennsylvania Hospital after its founding at mid-century. And I also spent some time at the American Philosophical Society in the Pennsylvania Hospital archives looking at those records. And the East India Company offers another example of the close relationship between state institutions and medicine exports that developed during the 18th century. The directors fostered competition from medicine suppliers by offering annual contracts to supply company settlements in South Asia, um, which again comprised a range of free and unfree individuals. Each year saw new attempts to lobby the court of directors for a share of the season's medicines that occupied an increasing share of company expenses and space in companies' ships holds over time. In 1760, for example, Sylvanus and Timothy Bevan again provided 60%, Alexander Johnston 30%, and the London Society of Apothecaries 10% of the annual supply. And here we can see, and now here the Y axis is thousands of pounds sterling. So now we're looking at spending the value of medicines exported within the East India Company over the period 1740 to 1790. Um, and right, this is adjusted for inflation. So these are comparable. And as right, there's sort of two conclusions one can draw from this, right? That either medicines are becoming more expensive and they are exporting the same amount or they're exporting increasing amounts of medicines over this period. And as I've shown, and as other scholars like Patrick Wallace have shown, medicines are either are actually getting cheaper in this period. So it's even more and more, um, so this suggests higher volume over this time. And this is also a period uh, where the East India Company is expanding its sort of quasi-state territorial foothold um, and sovereignty really in South Asia. So each season, the medicines would be scrutinized by company surgeons in South Asia to inform the next season's purchasing decisions. In 1766, the apothecaries received a nominal monopoly for the trading season based on the perceived dependability of their medicines and saw significant returns from this trade which continued into the next century. Nevertheless, other druggists and chemists, including Samuel Hannay, James Boggle French, and Timothy Bevan, continued to provide medicines for the East India Company from time to time into the 1770s. Plans to expand European-style medicine manufacturing capacity in South Asia were discussed at various points during the 1760s and 1770s as well. So I hope the previous examples of competition for contracts to supply medicines to the EIC or the Royal Navy have illustrated the scope and scale of the medicine trade. And despite the rich business records of the medicine trade that I've analyzed right for the book and for this work, it remains quite difficult to determine what percentage of total revenue these contracts and long distance orders constituted for medicine exporters. And of course, right, it varied on a case-to-case -case basis on like a firm to firm basis. Uh, two things I can say for sure, Long distance orders could be quite large by weight and in value, hundreds of pounds value and thousands of pounds weight per year. 
in terms of gross sales, one merchant of medicines in London once wrote that he returned nearly 5,000 pounds sterling per annum from wholesale business and turned a profit of about 600 pounds sterling in 1766. Earlier in the century, most London businessmen earned less than 750 pounds sterling per year, with many taking in less than 250 pounds sterling. And those who provided medical services usually saw even smaller incomes. We can see here, right, though there is a pretty robust business archive for the medicine trade, right, the records are rarely ever complete. So here I have one year of a balance sheet from Corbin and Co, a you know, pharmacy, a medicine making um, concern uh, in 18th century London. You can see here at the bottom, right, the proceeds carried over, carried from, as well as right stock in hand. We can see sort of the amounts of profit they're making as well as right the amount of goods they have. And right, and as I've argued elsewhere, that such pharmacies resembled mercantile houses and manufacturers more than the apothecary shops of medieval Europe. And the development of overseas markets for medicines is very much a part of that shift. And the rewards of the medicine trade were not confined to state or quasi-state institutions as manufactured medicines also found purchase in the Atlantic world slave societies that were themselves rife with potential patients. The average number of enslaved persons on a sugar estate in the British West Indies nearly doubled from the 1740s to the 1780s by some measures. The island of Barbados's overall enslaved population rose from about 50,000 individuals in 1700 to more than 90,000 in 1770, while the free white population stayed around 15 to 17,000 people over the same span. As settlements in tropical areas supported larger populations, Observers' concerns about health mounted in new genres of tropical health and plantation manuals followed that amplified the promise of specifics and imported medicines for assuaging those concerns. Acclimating to the climate and disease environment of the islands typically claimed 15 to 20% of recently arrived captives. Squalid living conditions, poorly constructed dwellings, and brutal treatment of the sick exacerbated mortality for the enslaved, whose life expectancy in the Caribbean remained less than 40 years, with many not surviving two decades. Given the incredible mortality and morbidity rates and capital investment in the region, British medicines counted among a sugar estate's annual expenses alongside other provisions such as grains, tools, and clothing. Shipments could cost hundreds of pounds sterling, debts paid by the future value of plantation produce shipped to London. So in many ways then, medicine easily fit into the prevailing rhythms of transatlantic commerce, right? Medicines would be shipped out with the years or the season's provisions, and they would be paid for by the proceeds of sugar sold at auction in London, with the right proceeds eventually making their way back to some of these manufacturing pharmacies in London. Common ailments in these spaces included fevers and fluxes, as well as ulcerated limbs sustained as a result of deficient diet, lack of suitable footwear, labor-related incidents, and the routine violence of the plantation. Many ailments proved resistant to available medical interventions, though that did not dull the desire for them to work. Planters stockpiled imported medicines and were expected to administer remedies as part of managing the state, even if they had no formal medical training. Often they tasked skilled Afro-Caribbean attendants with much of the daily care. In other cases, overseers and bookkeepers dispensed medicines having read about them in a manual. Plantation doctors also circulated who were typically paid per annum per head for healthcare provided to the enslaved men, women, and children on estates where they had such arrangements. In one case, Alexander Johnston claimed to have provided care to nearly 1,500 enslaved people on nine Jamaican estates in 1770 alone as part of what he called a, quote, insurance policy. And again, this is an image of a period uh, plantation uh, in Guyana. So this is French, again, just to give you a sense. And here, the letter D and that I've circled here uh, indicates what is sort of identified as the hospital on the plantation. Right, and as I'll be talking about, right, health also takes on these other dimensions of surveillance, confinement, and punishment, uh, in addition to sort of desperate hopes for 
uh, recovering. So we can see that sort of a specific space set aside for that on the plantation. And this was common across right, estates in the Caribbean. So Johnston's term insurance policy reflects from another angle what the export figures already show, that imported medicines formed an important part of plantation healthcare in the eyes of practitioners, planters, merchants, and officials to protect investment and labor power. Right? What enslaved patients thought of them, however, remains largely out of view. Although recent work by Rana Hogarth, Catherine Powell, and Sasha Turner, just to name a few, uh, gives us ways to start thinking about that question. Sue, uh, a woman enslaved at Graham Hall on Barbados, for example, was directed to receive medical treatments every day for a week. Was she also kept away from her family during this time? Did she have any privacy? Did the treatments irritate her skin or burn her throat? Did they add to the ordeal of working under the early summer sun? Perhaps she tried to avoid them as best she could. What kinds of bodily evidence had Barwick Bruce, the traveling plantation doctor, collected to recommend his prescriptions for her? The perceived efficacy and portability of specifics made applying them relatively simple in theory, though forcible means could be used in practice to ensure they were ingested. For the enslaved person subjected to medicines in this manner, the experience was anything but simple. With routines of confinement, punishment, and surveillance, medicines comprised a method of healthcare designed to enforce discipline and productivity in the Caribbean, another way of inscribing enslaved status onto some and not others. The blurred boundaries between surveillance, medicine, and discipline are visible elsewhere across the early modern world, as plenty of other scholars have shown in their work. So now moving into sort of the final portion of my talk, I uh, to think about, right, what did this shift to thinking of people as interchangeable patients, what did that mean? And what kind of consequences did that have sort of outside of the medicine trade? Right, so from this potent mix of capital, medicine, and empire emerged a radical idea for the time, that people would react similarly to a particular medicine, regardless of who, noble, poor, free, bound, man, woman, child, or where, right? Europe, Americas, Asia, Africa, they were. In other words, the effectiveness of medicines need not be sensitive to the idiosyncrasies of a particular person in a particular place. By such logic, a Chinese emperor could find relief from a fever with a tincture of chinchona, just as would a cooper in London, an African captive at sea, or a nurse in Boston. And consider how convenient this would seem to a surgeon on a Navy vessel, a physician on a sugar estate. Instead of examining each person individually to decide a prescription, he could identify a disease and then prescribe a single medicine for the entire group, thus reducing individual attention while theoretically protecting the labor force. And while the notion of universal effectiveness right, might seem to obliterate rather than reinforce hierarchies between individuals, Right, based on race, class, sex, for example, it actually enabled a new form of systematic exclusion by the end of the 18th century. In the face of supposedly universal medications, differing medical outcomes for oppressed groups could easily be used to justify emergent racial ideologies across the slave societies of the Atlantic world. Under the coercive conditions of plantation slavery, disparities in health outcomes were common. Those disparities, however, were often attributed to racial pathologies rather than the institutionalized deprivation and violence of enslaved labor. Again, this may seem like a contradictory idea that such a radical idea of sameness um, would lead to new ideas of human difference, but it boils down to the question of what happens when an expectation of sameness, or at least of comparable efficacy, right, is disabused on a sugar plantation. How are those visible material differences in outcome justified or understood by those reliant on racialized hierarchy? Within imperial framework, medicines perceived or purported to act in a similar regular way, thus offered a vector for ideas of human difference to shape routines of healthcare and the interpretations and really justifications of unequal outcomes in those spaces. And we can see right this again is a topic that is taken up robustly by the emergent genres of plantation manuals and tropical medicine texts uh, that are appearing in the second half of the 18th and early 19th centuries. 
here are two examples, both of which uh, actually I looked at while I was a fellow at the library company several years ago at this point. Uh, one such influential text, Dr. Collins's Practical Rules for the Management and Medical Treatment of Negro Slaves in the Sugar Colonies, published in 1803, you can see it here on the right, uh, articulated an idea of physiological difference marked by skin color based on differential outcomes uh, on Caribbean plantations. Dysentery, according to Collins, affected those with black skin more severely than those with white, quote, so that the two varieties of men seem to pass out of life by two different outlets, the one by fluxes and the other by fevers. Though we differentiated between the severity of ailments suffered by those of Afro-Caribbean and European descent in this way, and left outright all those other factors um, that we know contribute to mortality and morbidity, morbidity, excuse me, in these spaces. Collins lamented that, quote, the knife of the anatomist, however, has never been able to detect, right, in my words here, right, different internal organization of these people. Right. So in other words, though he based his belief in the inherent bodily difference of people with varying skin color on observations of how they responded to disease and treatment, Collins could find no physiological basis for such difference from his reading of anatomy texts or perhaps his own grisly forays into dis dissection, right? That's sort of that, that, that word choice, that the knife of the anatomist. Collins' work is only one of many that comprise the emergent genres of plantation manuals and tropical medicine. And again, right, I was introduced to these literatures as a Pease short-term fellow at the library company way back now in 2015 when I was finishing my dissertation that went on to become this book. Speaking with the librarians, including James Green, in addition to the other fellows, opened my eyes to the influence of these texts, a realization that wanted to reshape and strengthen the book's interventions, particularly on this subject. Without the community right fostered by the fellowship program of the library company, right, this book would not have developed as it did, and for that I'm really grateful. Uh, the conclusion of authors such as Collins, right, Samuel Martin, who you can see here on the left, William Belgrove, Patrick Kine, and Clement Keynes, for example, helped normalize a logic of overdosing of medicines and forced medication for enslaved men, women, and children based on racial pathology, emergent racial pathologies of pain tolerance and susceptibility to particular kinds of medicines or ailments. Lacking physical evidence for these pathologies, however, did not stop Collins from propagating such racial ideologies even as he insisted that he was making plantations healthier and more productive in the age of abolition. And of course, versions of these ideas continue to influence discourse about health today in both subtle and not so subtle ways. Take, for example, the racialized assumptions about certain groups' tolerance for pain or physical capabilities, right? We can think of you know, claims about lung capacity among African-Americans, for example. The recent studies of pulse oximeters are another example as are the data on maternal mortality rates. The identification of, and frankly, the shock of many upon hearing about differential health, health outcomes during the COVID-19 crisis underscores the success of healthcare as an institution itself to obscure the inequalities and hierarchies that comprise its history. And these plantation manuals illustrate that at the very moment when medical practitioners gained access to bulk manufactured medicines and began prescribing them with greater authority, racialized ideas about bodily difference gained legitimacy within the institutions underwriting those medical developments and profiting from ideas of human sameness, right, to expand the medicine trade. The notion that migratory and vulnerable populations presented lucrative opportunities for medicine sales has remained, as have the take this for that and largely one-size-fits-all approaches inaugurated within the early modern European empires. Healthcare also emerged as a means of regulating behavior and changing perceptions of people's bodies. Within an imperial framework, universality thus offered a means for some to shape routines of healthcare and interpretation of unequal outcomes for others. Forces of empire, subjugation, and exploitation conspired to turn a more nuanced, individualized approach to health into an all or nothing, generalized and interchangeable population view of sickness and treatment, more bent toward curative measures rather than wellness or palliation. 
The medical revolutions of the next two centuries cloaked these early modern logics in new vocabularies and technologies, but did little to displace them. The 19th century brought advances in sanitation and real declines in mortality, while ideas forwarded by scientists like Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur and the subsequent development in the 20th century of antibiotics encouraged paradigm shifts in, in considering the human body and disease. Nevertheless, the fact that envisioning people as interchangeable patients, comprising both workforces and markets, has remained so economically and medically axiomatic, often at the expense of considerations of individual well-being, speaks to the relevance of this history to our current moment. So I'd like to conclude now by zooming out for one moment to put this information together in one other way. Within the framework of overseas empire, manufactured medicines changed the prevailing expectations of healthcare, bodily potential, disease, and work across colonial and metropolitan spaces. In short, this is a story about how commercial material things reshaped perceptions of immaterial and abstract things, namely of nature, the human body, and the relationship between the two. Shifting expectations had implications for ideas of inherent difference between people who looked different, altered communities of healing around the Atlantic world, degraded colonial ecosystems, and underwrote large medical businesses with the aid of state institutions. It may look different over time, but in the 18th century, we can already identify the familiar constellation of state, labor, war, taxes, the body, and wealth that supports the logics of, quote, modern medicine. This is an arrangement that is as much commercial and political in origin as it is medical or scientific, and has been exposed by the COVID-19 crisis that has shown us in another way that we are not very far from being patients ourselves. Thank you. And as my last slide here, I wanted to you know, put up some contact information with me if you'd like to continue the conversation and just add another plug for the book, Merchants of Medicines, uh, that you can purchase uh, for 35% off um, for the time being with code, promo code, my last name, Dorner, at the University of Chicago Press website. Thank you. Thank you, Zachary. That was fantastic. Um, it was really interesting. I am sure you're going to have questions. I have some for myself. I just had some, I wanted to know a little bit about what the, how you bought these medicines, how one bought them. Is part of the picture that they're not, they weren't entirely for retail consumption. And so you had large institutions sort of dealing with them wholesale as opposed to retail. Like how did the, how did the market work on the, on the buying end? Yeah, certainly that's a great question and occupies a lot of the book as well, but it sort of makes a little bit for drier uh, presentation. I love the dry stuff. Great. Well, yeah, we can talk for hours, days, right on sort of the paper technologies, the sort of the trading practices and strategies that you know animate this trade. In many ways, it's sort of similar to long, like the sort of the risks and uncertainties and foibles of long distance trade in this period, where there's a lot of epistolary letter letter writing, you know, time delays. But it really would consist of, I guess, I'm getting off track here. There was a lot of retail purchasing as well, right? A lot of these pharmacists, druggists, chemists, and apothecaries operated retail shops in London where someone could walk in off the street and buy sort of a colorful, fragrant, right, tincture of rhubarb or of chinchona or something like that for a nagging ailment they might have, right? But those transactions are relatively small, right? In this age of, right, you know, debt financing really, uh, uncertainty and risk, it's these large scale um, contracts and shipments to plantations, Royal Navy hospitals, that really sort of, you know, move the needle, so to speak. And those are done sort of um, across distances, a lot based a lot on interpersonal trust and having to deal with uh, exchanging different com colonial commodities for, you know, credit or specie in London, right? So some of these medicine makers have to deal with selling sugar at, at auction or selling deer skins or turning those into value. So a lot of interesting, complicated steps that go from sending medicines out to actually receiving value in London. It's a really complicated you know, chain of events that I talk about more in the book as well. Thank you for that. 
we, a question has come in from Chris Larson, who asks, how did the expansion of specific medicine impact the use of traditional or indigenous remedies? Was there active suppression of the traditional homemade remedies? Yeah, yeah, thanks for that question. It really is a point I, I, I wanna stress too that right, this isn't some sort of bright line shift from a physiological view to an ontological view or from right, sort of a diverse syncretic Atlantic medical marketplace to one sort of entirely dominated by these kinds of manufactured medicines, right? It's a process that is changed, that is occurring in this period and it continued far into the 19th century, but it is one of crowding out, right? That crowding out that is backed by, right? The power differentials and hierarchies and economic and military power really, right? Of empire. So we see in these locations, there still is interest, right? In indigenous cures and indigenous remedies, but oftentimes, right? As others have written about, right? well and into a great extent right at the stripping of local knowledge from those products um, and, and how they get incorporated into European medical corpuses right strips that information and a lot of the same ingredients goods end up in these manufactured medicines but shorn right of their you know local indigenous connotations and meanings and cultural values um, during this process but it's not sort of an all or nothing right there are many kinds of sort of what I like to call health ways Right, competing, jockeying for position in this period still. And it's just that these sort of large institutional contracts, the expanding markets and trade of a particular kind of medicine this period allowed that health way of manufactured medicines to have access to right generational wealth construction, have real access to state institutions. And that sort of sets itself up along with a lot of other things, of course, right, to sort of get larger market share, right, for a, sort of a prosaic way to put it. That's very interesting. One of our shareholders, Steve Peitzman, uh, wrote in, uh, but he wrote in at th through the chat. And there's just a, there's an, a comment there, but there is um, hidden inside the comment some specific questions. One was to ask what were the most frequently shipped medicines? He speculates that calomel accounted for a high percent, but that's that was one specific question in Steve's comment. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm looking at this comment here now. Right, I mean, there are, and this is also sort of an interesting question on, right, I get, I get a kind of question often, and this is not that question, but it's related, right, that, like, did people believe that these medicines worked? And right, there's, and that's sort of not necessarily the right question to ask that people did, but right, they're driven by desperation um, in many ways, but that doesn't mean that none of these, you know, substances had therapeutic potential or efficacy, right? Chinchona, Peruvian bark, which we now know, right, contains quinine, right, was a, you know, effective febrifuge, right, anti-fever medication. So, right, there are, is a lot of bioespionage, biopiracy, long-distance trade in chinchona uh, to fight, right, the ever-present fevers that sort of haunt, right, the Atlantic and Indian Ocean worlds. Um, also, a lot of trade in barks and other sort of fragrant woods um, that were believed due to sort of facile physical similarities to have similar, you know, um, therapeutic effects. Um, also, right, as, um, you know, Stephen mentions, right, calomel and other sort of opiate um, derived items, right, sort of mer mercury-based items, antimony, um, opiate-related items, again, for sort of the perceived uh, efficacy they hold. Um, and again, the medicine trade is also like it's, you know, in addition to the actual medicines, right? Thinking like stepping back and thinking commercially for a second, and back to your question, Mike, about sort of long distance trade, these things have to be packaged in a way that they can um, survive, you know, intact on long voyages without spoiling or breaking or spilling, right? And a lot of these two are chemical salts, the so pre reactive substances. So there's, some examples from the East India Company, they say, oh man, this, this package broke open and seawater got in and it's set on fire and the hole caught on fire because these medicines broke open because they weren't packaged correctly. So thinking about the amount of wood, stuffing, glass, right? there's a really interesting history to be written here about glass, not only in the medicine trade, but in wine, all these kinds of long distance trades that require preservation of natural things in some way or another. So thinking about all these ancillary, um, trades and sort of materials that have to go into making, you know, a preparation of chinchona, whether that's sort of 
distilled in alcohol or rolled into a pill or dried and crushed into a powder? How do you get that thing that to a place thousands of nautical miles away? And that includes a lot of other materials too. I was wondering, as I was hearing you talk about, it's, it's, it's within the realm of medicine and it's very much front of mind for us, but thinking about all of the sort of precursors to a smallpox vaccine and the sort of the early forms of that, your argument is different, in, but it does involve sort of the increased and specialized form of medicine um, and pharmaceuticals in particular, but were there, was, was there a conversation related to this around vaccination? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And one um, that I have to say, I don't, I can't answer fully um, and would defer to, to others, mm-hmm. but I think it does sort of fit within this general sort of changing mindset about sort of the potential and interchangeability of bodies, right? If you think about it, right, the ability to that inoculation, right, which is sort of the, the, the way to, you know, prevent smallpox, like a, a heavy smallpox infection. It didn't come into the front of my mind. I'm glad it made it to, into yours. Well, I was actually, I was actually just reading a piece earlier today about sort of testing inoculation on the poor in England at this time, so, right? So it again sort of speaks to the fact that people, sort of state officials, people with economic and political stakes, people with medical, you know, um, interests, right, are considering groups of people who are sort of perceived to be important in terms of labor, important in terms of the value that their bodies embody, or important in terms, or or useful in terms of the fact that they're sort of marginal to sort of the normative view of like, what's the main valuable part of society, right, are seen as in bulk and are seen as populations that can be treated in bulk by medicines, new medical technologies, they can be housed, right? This is also an era where we have the um, emergence of these large scale hospitals, right? For the treatment of the poor and infirm, right? The Pennsylvania hospitals, sort of, sure. you know, it's different, but it falls into that general category of these large scale mm-hmm. edifices. Um, so yeah, I think it goes to this larger population theory that's also occurring in other fields, right? The field of political arithmetic, right? Which is inaugurated in the 17th century, right? Is thinking about things at this larger scale of sort of imperial political economy and that includes populations and demography. And it's all the piece of thinking about these people uh, in interchangeable ways. And that also makes them susceptible and sort of makes it okay to test things on them. We have reached the end of our hour, but I have one more question that I need to ask you because, because I have the microphone and I'm not letting it down. Were, have you been able to find, like looking at the disciplinarity of medicine, looking within the practice of medicine and pharmacology, and then training, like in medical schools in Edinburgh and elsewhere, are you able to see a sort of corresponding change in how doctors are being trained at that moment to be more reliant on these specialized medicines? Yeah. Is that, is that kind of professionalization of it part of the story as well? Yeah, it's interesting when you, yeah, hearing you talk about it as professionalization professionalization, it's interesting. So on the one hand, it's sort of a falling away of pre-professional regulation in the London medical marketplace, for example. So the declining regulatory power of the College of Physicians, the Society Mm -hmm. of Apothecaries, a sort of corresponding lack of any sort of credentialing or regulatory bodies in Philadelphia or Boston until later in the 18th century um, that enables a variety of practitioners to start, try their hand at making medicines. So that, so that sort of like opens up the medical marketplace, but at the same time for surgeons and physicians who are often the ones going abroad to practice medicine, right? You do see in the curriculum at Edinburgh, right at Leiden, right? People publishing on specifics and people teaching them in lectures. Um, so it's sort of that there's different, is it sort of two different regulatory professionalization mm-hmm. stories here that actually right dovetail to um, spread this you know intellectual um, to this idea, but it's also, again, as I try to argue, it's intellectual, but it's also very pragmatic, right? It makes a lot of sense to, you know, treat people in this manner across the empire. Sure, sure. Thank you, Zachary, um, um, if I may call you Zachary. Uh, and thank you for a really interesting talk and for hanging around and answering some questions. I hope to see all of you. I think our next fireside chat is going to be in two weeks. There was some information right at the start start of the hour. I hope we get to see you back in Philadelphia again sometime soon. You're not too far away. Um, please do stop in when you're in town next. We're open opened up.
And uh, thank you for sharing your work with us tonight. I hope everyone has a good evening.